Okay, well, thank you, Mr. Michael, for helping us out there. And I know that's not an easy thing to do, uh, but we are very, very grateful uh, for your service and your help this morning. Okay, our passage this morning will be Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll read verses 9 to 13, but our focus will be verses 10 to 13. So Hebrews chapter 2, and let's read verses 9 to 13. It says, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, from whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray today, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Lord, we pray that you would teach us, Lord, of the greatness of the salvation that you've given through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How it is that you have perfected the author of our salvation through his sufferings. Lord, that we might not be ashamed of the cross of Christ. And Lord, we might not be ashamed to suffer with him. So Lord, show us that without the death of Christ, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without his sufferings, we would not be able to go to glory and be with you. Lord, that we might have a proper view and perspective of what it means to suffer for Christ and that we might see him in all of his glory. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, here in this passage, the apostle has been displaying the glory of Jesus Christ, right? his superiority to the angels. And we've seen that he has been given a name that is greater than the angels. He has been given the name Son. The Father has never addressed or called any of the angels by the name Son. Also, he has received a position of highest honor. No angel was ever told to sit at the right hand of God the Father until all things were put in subje to subjection under their feet. But this was said of Jesus Christ. He has been exalted to the position of highest honor. He has received a name that is above every name. However, we have seen that this exaltation has come through his sufferings. The pathway ordained by God the Father, the means by which Jesus the Messiah was exalted as both God and man to the right hand of God the Father was through the suffering of death. It is because of the suffering of death that he has now been crowned with glory and honor. And we know from Luke 24 that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and then enter into his glory. And this is why it was necessary for a little while for Jesus to be made lower than the angels. According to his human nature, he was lower than the angels. He was made like us in every way except without sin. He took on human flesh. He took on blood, flesh and blood, and was subjected to all of the weaknesses that we are subjected to in our humanity even to the point that his body was subjected to death. And he actually died, really died on the cross for our sins. And this is necessary. This is the key pivotal component of the work of Christ. His death 
on the cross for our sins. He tasted death for us. He cannot save us from our sins. He cannot grant the forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God if he did not come and taste death for us. He had to die on the cross for our sins and be raised for our justification. And in order to benefit from the person and work of Christ, then we must believe in his death. We must not be ashamed of it. We must embrace his sufferings. We cannot be offended at a suffering Christ who dies a cruel, shameful death on the cross. And yet it is exactly at this point that many people are offended at Christ. Especially this was true among the Jewish people. One of the chief articles of contention against Jesus was his sufferings. They stumble, they are offended by the cross of Christ. They thought it strange that the Messiah that the Son of God, that the Savior of the people, that the Captain of salvation, concerning whom so many great and glorious truths have been proclaimed and foretold that he would be brought low through suffering. The enemies of Christ believe that his death on the cross proved in their mind without any doubt that he was not qualified to serve as Messiah. It says in Matthew 27 verse 41, It says, in the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. We know as well that even his own disciples were slow to believe this truth. Slow of heart to believe in the sufferings of Christ. Yet the sufferings of Jesus, rather than disqualifying him from serving as the Messiah, prove the exact opposite. It is precisely because of the suffering of death that he has been exalted to the position of highest honor. The problem that many have is that they're focused on this present world. They expected a deliverance that was outward, that was glorious, that was kingly, that was in this present world. And how could a Messiah who suffered and died be of any value in accomplishing prosperity in this present life? But if our minds are fixed on the spiritual, if our minds are focused on the eternal, then we will not be offended with the cross of Christ. But we will rightly see that the sufferings of Jesus are of great value and confirm to us his position as the only mediator between God and man. We will not be offended at his sufferings, nor will we be offended when we are called to suffer for the sake of his name, which is a necessary part of our own salvation. So this is what he's dealing with here. He's proving why it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and how it is that these sufferings are what has resulted in his exaltation. Because we remember that the church that he's writing to, they are themselves suffering. And they're being tempted to walk away from Christ because of the presence of suffering. But we can't do that. We have to press on and endure in these things. So let's pick up in verse 10 this morning of Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 where he is confirming these truths. It says, For it was fitting for him, from whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Here he says it was fitting for him. Namely, it was fitting for God the Father 
to ordain before the world was created certain things regarding salvation. God ordained before the foundation of the world that Jesus Christ would bring many sons to glory and that the means by which he would accomplish this great salvation would be the suffering of death. God ordained these things concerning Christ. Therefore, it was fitting for God the Father to accomplish, to fulfill what he had previously ordained by his will and what he had predicted by the holy prophets of old. Since God ordained it, then it must be accomplished. And that's what he's saying. It's fitting for these things to happen because God predicted it. God ordained it and God foretold that this is the way it would be. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 in verse 37. Luke twenty-two thirty-seven. 37. It says, For I tell you, that which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. There he says, what was written must be fulfilled in me. It is fitting for these things to be fulfilled in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. Also, Luke 24, Luke 24, verse 44 to 45. It says, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. There it is again fitting for these things to be accomplished in Jesus Christ. So it was fitting for him, for God. Then he says, from whom are all things and through whom are all things. This is the God who has ordained the sufferings of Christ. All things exist for Him, and all things exist through Him. We exist for His glory. We are here for Him, and we are here by His mighty power. We must understand this, that we are not the center of the universe. Everything does not revolve around you and me. God's existence does not revolve around you and me, but rather, we exist for Him, for God's glory, not for man's. This is what John the Baptist said in John 3, verse 30, when he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. And also in Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Romans eleven thirty three says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? Who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. From him, through him, to him. All things. And the result is, he deserves to be gloried forever. Amen. This is what we must understand. And this should give us great confirmation, great confidence in our salvation because our salvation was ordained by God for this great end to bring glory and honor to Him and God will to glorify His name. The means ordained by God to manifest His glory in this world is through the person and through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. His life, His death, 
his resurrection, his glorification, the salvation of his people results in great praise and glory to God. God has worked this great salvation for this end, that his name might be glorified in all the earth. This is why Jesus was so willing to go and die on the cross. It says in John 12, 27 to 28, he says, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God is glorifying his name, and he is doing so in the person of his son and in the salvation that he brings to his people. So there again it says in verse 10, It was fitting for him, from whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. This is what God the Father has ordained. This is what he is accomplishing through the work of Christ. He has ordained the salvation of his people. And he is bringing many sons to glory. The many sons are the ones who benefit from the death of Jesus Christ. The many sons are the same group that we saw in verse 9. The ones that he tastes death for. Remember what it said in verse 9. At the end, who has ever lived or walked the face of the earth. But he tastes death for everyone, meaning every one of his people. And everyone that he tastes death for is a son that he will bring to glory. And he's not bringing everyone to glory, but only his children, only those that have been given to him by the Father. There is a limited scope of people that he's talking about here. So we're not talking about potential salvation, uh, possible salvation, but if Jesus tasted this real, it is a definite, a certain atonement. And we remember that when he said taste death for everyone, he qualifies this in the upcoming verses. In, verse, in our verse, he says many sons to glory. Also in verse 11, he says those who are sanctified. In verse 11, he calls them brethren. In verse 12, he calls them my brethren. In verse 12, he calls them the congregation. In verse 13, they are the, they're called the descendants of Abraham. In verse 17, they are called his brethren. And then in verse 17, it says the sins of the people. So this group has a limited focus. It is a limited group of people. And these are the ones he tastes death for. And the result of his tasting death for them is that he brings them to glory. Many sons to glory. So the death of Christ was not for all people but rather for all work of redemption. Also, they are called sons. Sons, many sons to glory. So why sons? Why not sons and daughters? Why not sons and daughters? Well, John chapter 8, verses 34 and 38, he's focusing on sons for the sake of inheritance. Does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you have heard from your father. He says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son remains forever. Only the Son remains in the house. Only the Son 
has the inheritance of the household. The slave has no standing, no position in the household like a son, because he's not a son, he is a slave. And in our natural state, we are slaves to sin. Meaning in our natural state, we have no standing before God. We have no right of inheritance. All we are owed and due from God is judgment and eternal condemnation because of our many sins against God. In the natural state, we are not faithful sons of God, but rather we are enemies of God. It says such in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 describes us in our natural state. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly, formerly lived, in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That is what we are in our natural state. We are enmity with God. We are at war with God. We are rebels against God, enemies against God. Jesus is the only natural son of the Father. He and he alone is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He and he alone has the right of inheritance. This is why he had to come down to us. He had to come down to us. He had to descend from heaven. He had to be made like us in every way except without sin. He had to die on the cross for our sins. He had to be raised from the dead for our justification. And now he has ascended into heaven, into glory, so that he might raise us up out of the miry pit and seat us with him in heavenly places in the age to come. And we have this right, not naturally, but we have it by adoption. We become sons by adoption. In our natural state, our natural birth, we are enemies of God, we are slaves of sin. But by new birth, we become sons of God through adoption. This is why you must be born again. We must have a spiritual birth into the family of God in order to entertain any hope of eternal glory. It takes a miracle, the miracle of God, the miracle of regeneration. And this is what transforms us spiritually from being enemies and rebels against God into being his dearly beloved children, into his sons. And here, both men and women are called sons because he means it in terms of inheritance. The son receives the inheritance from the father. So we, by virtue of our adoption into the family of God, we all will receive an inheritance with Christ. He is the firstborn son. He has the right of inheritance. He is the heir of all things. As he says in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. And he shares this with us. He shares his inheritance with us, with his children, with his brothers, with his bride. Right? All of these are different metaphors used to describe our relationship to Christ. And he shares his goodness, his grace, what is his by right, he shares with us, with his people. Galatians chapter 4, 
Galatians 4, verses 1 to 7. There it says, Galatians 4, verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of this world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So through Christ, by his being born, sent, uh, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And then because we are sons, now we can call God our Father, and also we have an inheritance. We are heirs of God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It says the same in Romans 8, 16, and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we might also be glorified with him. So he is bringing many sons to glory. Notice there as well, he's bringing the sons to glory, to glory. This is the outcome of our salvation. Glory being the very presence of God, to be in the presence of God, to be with God for all eternity in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That is the end goal of our salvation. It ends in our glorification, our being equipped, being fitted with a nature that can be in the presence of God, that can enter into eternal glory. As we are right now, we're not fit for heaven. We cannot enter into the kingdom of God with the flesh and blood, with the body that we currently have. There needs to be a transformation that takes place. And this is accomplished through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through his resurrection from the dead. And that resurrection is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What has happened to Christ at his resurrection will happen to us as well. And then the body that we rise with is a body and a soul that will be fit to enter into the kingdom of God and to dwell with God in heaven for all eternity. 1 Corinthians 15 teaches this. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 35 to 58. This is why, again, death is necessary. His death was necessary so that he might put off the flesh that he had at his incarnation, the body of weakness that we have, and then put on a new body, a glorified body, and then that is the template for what will happen to us as well. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. But someone will say, How are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. 
There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man Adam became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and the mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. There he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The perishable cannot inherit that which is imperishable. Right? The natural cannot inherit that which is spiritual. Right? Our bodies that have no glory cannot go into glory and be with God as they currently are. There must be a transformation that takes place. And in our current state, we're not capable of entering into the kingdom of God. We cannot dwell in God's presence for all eternity as we currently are. Our natural flesh and blood cannot inherit it because we have a nature of sin. Certainly that is true of us before our conversion, but even after our conversion, we still have the flesh. And how can the flesh dwell in God's presence for all eternity? It has to be destroyed. It has to be put away. It has to die. And only then are we fit to enter into eternal glory. In order to enter into eternal glory, we need to have both a body and soul that is glorious that has been redeemed, that has been purged from all sin. For how can a sinner, even if we are cleansed of 99% of our sin, and only 1% sin remains, just a little portion of sin, how could we be in God's presence? We can't. It would be impossible. We would not be fit to be in His presence, to enter into eternal glory. This is why Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. In our sin, we are short of the glory of God. We cannot be in His presence. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to approve of evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. Job 25 verses 4 to 6 
says, how can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of a woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm? And it says in Psalm 24, 3-4, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. Only the pure, only the righteous, only the just, only those who have perfectly clean hands and a perfectly pure heart, only they can ascend the hill of the Lord and enter into eternal glory with God. It says in Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination in lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This the new Jerusalem or the new heavens and the new earth. Well, is that true of any of us in our natural state? Even in our converted state, practically speaking, that's also not true of us. There is only one man who has ever walked the face of this earth that these things were true of. One who was not merely a man, but more than a man, much more than a man, the man Christ Jesus, who was God in human flesh. And it is through his person and through his work that we who by nature cannot ascend the hill of the Lord, who have no right to eternal glory, it is through him that we are able to enter in. He left the glory and came down to us in order that he might take us with him back to glory. He descended the hill of the Lord so that he might ascend again. But when he ascends again, he does not ascend by himself, but who does he bring with him? He brings us. He brings his people. And when he reascends, he does so not only as the Son of God, but as the Christ as the mediator, as the Son of God and the Son of Man in the one person, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when he ascended as the Christ, he does so so that we might be with him in glory forever and ever. So that we can be adopted into God's family as sons and have a right of inheritance. And in order for all of this to happen, in order for us to be able to enter into eternal glory, right? what is the key? Right? What is the issue that we have that must be dealt with that prohibits us from entering into eternal glory? It is our sin. It is our sin. Sin is the problem. It was sin that initially caused Adam and Eve to be expelled from the Garden of Eden, from that place where the glory and the presence of God was known. It says in Isaiah 59 too, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Sin separates us from God. Sin makes it impossible for us to dwell with the Lord, to be in his presence. So if we are going to enter into eternal glory, then our sin must be addressed. There must be a payment for it. Which is why he says in verse 10, that it was fitting for God in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. This is why it's necessary for him to suffer. 
This is why he had to be perfected through it. The author of salvation is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And our Lord was made perfect through his sufferings, meaning he was proven. It was manifested that he was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, without any defect, without any blemish of sin. This was proven in what he suffered, that he was a fitting sacrifice to take away the sins of the people. This was made known through his sufferings. Hebrews 5, verses 7 to 8. Hebrews 5, verses 7 to 8. It says, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one able to save from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He learned obedience through his sufferings, meaning he was manifested and proven over and over and over and over again to be the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. That he always did the will of his Father, because no matter what the Father placed before him, he always obeyed. Even to the point of what? Even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it is because of this that God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It says in Philippians chapter 2. Also, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Verses 1 to 10. It says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The only way many sons could be taken to glory is by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ once for all for their sins. And it is that sacrifice for sin, His sacrifice, His body, His blood offered up for us. Not the blood of an animal. The blood of an animal, the blood of bulls and goats, could never take away sin. Only the blood of Christ, His precious blood, is the only thing that can take away our sin. Amen. By His body being offered and His blood shed once for all. Both the active and passive obedience of Christ are necessary for our salvation. He perfectly obeyed the commandments of God. 
He was born under the law. That's what we read earlier in Galatians chapter 4. He was born under it and he perfectly obeyed it. He lived a life of perfect righteousness before God. He always did the will of his Father who is in heaven. This is his active obedience. And it is through this obedience that he makes us righteous. He accounts us righteous. He gives to us his righteousness as if it is our very own. And then he died on the cross. This is his passive obedience. He suffered the cruel death on the cross and there was put to death for our sins. He paid the punishment that we deserved because of our sin. And through his passive obedience, our sins are taken away. Our righteousness is removed from us. So with both his active and passive obedience, we are made fit to enter into eternal glory. His passive obedience, his death on the cross, takes our sins away. His active obedience, his life of perfect righteousness, clothes us with his righteousness so that now we can be with God for all eternity. Sin which excludes us from eternal glory is removed, and righteousness which is necessary to enter into eternal glory, is given to us as a gift. Everything needed for us to be with God forever has graciously been provided through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And we must remember in this that the author, the captain, our elder brother, was made perfect through sufferings. Well, if he was made perfect through sufferings, then will he not also advance our salvation through our sufferings? Not that our sufferings ever amount to what he suffered. He will never call us to suffer the way that he suffered, for how could we ever suffer in that way? But he does call us to light momentary afflictions in order to advance our salvation. And when we see the good that came out of his sufferings, then why would we chide under the sufferings that God ordains for us. And we remember that this is written to Christians who are suffering, who are being tempted to walk away from the faith because of the presence of suffering. He endured suffering for our sake, so we must endure it for his sake. He entered into glory after suffering. We also must enter into glory after we have suffered with him. Hebrews 2 verse 11 says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Here he says, both he who sanctifies, that is our Lord Jesus Christ, it is through his person and work that sinners are sanctified, and then those who are sanctified, these are the many sons he's bringing to glory, those that he tasted death for, the children that God has given him. So both he who sanctified, which is Jesus, and those who are sanctified, which is us, his people, his body, all of us are from one Father. He is the head, we are his body. Christ is the active agent in sanctification. He is acting upon us. We are the passive recipients of his work. We are being sanctified by him. We do not sanctify ourselves. Though we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we are called to pursue sanctification. We have to be sanctified by another. Through his blood, through his work, he is the means or the source of our sanctification. 
And he calls us out of this world and then conforms us to himself, to his own image. He is sanctifying us so that we are fit to enter into the kingdom of God. It says in Romans 8, 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. His blood cleanses us from all of our sin. His spirit dwells within us and changes us, transforms us more and more and more. Day by day, we are conformed more and more into the image of Christ until one day, finally and fully, we will be conformed to Christ perfectly when we see him face to face. Then our salvation will be brought to its completion, to its full and final end. Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13, verses 10 to 14. Hebrews 13, verse 10 says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. There, our sanctification is necessary. This is our purging, our purification from sin. It begins at our conversion and it is brought to its completion at the second coming of Christ. And since we all have one Father with Christ, since we are being sanctified, then Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. In our natural state, he would be ashamed of us because of our sin. We are covered with filth in our natural state. We are hideous. We are ugly. We are detestable in the sight of God because of our many sins. But he dies for us to sanctify us, to purify us from our sins, to make us lovely and beautiful in the sight of God. And as a result of what he does in us, he is now no longer ashamed to own us and to call us his brothers because he purifies us from all ungodliness. A picture of this is in Ezekiel chapter 16. Here, he's speaking of this concerning the nation Israel. But what was true of them in terms of their outward benefits is true of us in terms of what we are spiritually in the sight of God. Ezekiel 16, verses 6 to 14. Ezekiel 16, verse 6. It says, When I pass by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up and became tall and reached the age for fine ornaments. And your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by and I saw you and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth, 
and put, put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hand and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostrils, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Then you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame, and you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. There, in terms of what they were in their natural state, as a child in the field, naked, covered in blood, squirming in its own blood, and then what God did for them, how he raised them up and made them beautiful in his sight. Is that not what has happened to us? In our natural state, are we not like this child there squirming in our own blood, filthy, disgusting in this way? And yet it is Christ himself who takes us, who sanctifies us, who cleanses us, who beautifies us, who makes us lovely in the sight of God through his own righteousness. It is this sanctification that he does in us that makes it to where he's not ashamed to call us his brethren, but rather he does so happily and joyfully. Now, in this relationship of the two parties, the one being our Lord Jesus Christ and the other being his church or being us, if anyone is going to be ashamed, right? if anyone has ground to be ashamed of the other, wouldn't it be Christ being ashamed of us? Because even in our salvation, we still have many weaknesses. We still have many failings. We still have our daily sins that we're trying to overcome. We're not perfect, and we are not complete. Yet, even now, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers, to own us, to have us as his own. So if Christ is not ashamed of us, then should we be ashamed of him? Of course not. We should not be ashamed of him at all. We should not be ashamed to own Him. We should not be ashamed to confess Him, to own His Word in this present world, to confess our allegiance and our loyalty to Him, and to confess our love for Him in this present world. This is why the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes in Romans 1.16. And Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Mark 8, 38. Since we are all of the same Father, since Christ is sanctifying us, since he is not ashamed to call us his brothers, then we should openly confess him as well. We should not be ashamed of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then lastly, Verses 12 and 13. Here's the proof text. Saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. These are the Old Testament scriptures that prove that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. The first is from Psalm 22, verse 22. I will tell your name to my brethren. 
in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm that predicts both the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. And Psalm 22, verse 22, is predicting the glory of Christ in heaven with his brothers. And there in heaven, he is openly, boldly, courageously singing praise to God the Father with his brothers, doing it there in the midst of the congregation. The assembly of the righteous is gathered together, and Christ is leading them to sing praise to God the Father. He's not ashamed to praise God with them, to be associated with them, to be leading them in this triumphant procession. He's doing this in the presence of God the Father and in the presence of the angels. He's not ashamed to have them as his brothers. And then the second quote is from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18. It says in Isaiah chapter 8, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will even look eagerly for him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel, for the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Sinai. Christ and the children given to him by God the Father. He says they are for signs and wonders, meaning they are emblems, they are trophies that are set before the people of the grace and power of God. God displays openly his people. He displays us openly to the world as evidence of his power to save. And he, if he's doing this, he's not ashamed of us. He's not hiding us in some dark corner. He's not covering us up, saying, no, don't look at this. No, he's doing this openly. We are signs and wonders of what God has done. He says, I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are his children, it says there, children of Christ. And are parents typically ashamed of their children? No, you can't get them to quit talking about them, right? They want to talk about them all the time. They want to boast about them. They want everyone to know about all the things that they have done. They're not ashamed of their children. Now, if their children are wayward and living a godless life, then they might be ashamed of them. But typically speaking, when the child is a uh, well-behaved, hardworking, successful child, the parents aren't ashamed of them. But they openly talk about them all the time. Well, we are the children of God. And he's not ashamed to call us his brethren. He's not ashamed to own us as his children. So we shouldn't be ashamed of him either. We should not, but rather we should put our trust in him. That's what Christ did. Christ trusted in his father and he was not disappointed. So we should trust in the father and we also will not be disappointed because we will enter into glory with Christ. And we will experience there pleasures, uh, an existence and enjoyment that this world will never know that it cannot know because they do not know God and they have not come to know God through his son, Jesus Christ. That is eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This should be the aim of our life, to know God through his son, Jesus Christ. And this we receive in this life through his holy word, by his spirit teaching us through his holy word. So may we then put these things and take them to heart and put them in our mind 
and have them in our thoughts, on our lips, not be ashamed of them, speak openly to our family, speak openly to our friends, speak openly to whomever will listen to us of this great salvation that we have through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to you today, Lord, thankful for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, knowing that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that, Lord, we were deserving of your wrath to be in hell for all eternity, separated from you. Lord, not in your presence, but instead, Lord, being afflicted, being tormented by your wrath because of the many sins that we have committed against you. Yet, Lord, now we entertain a hope of eternal life. Lord, we have this hope that we will enter into eternal glory, that we will dwell with you in your presence. And, Lord, we know that this could never come about by our own works, Lord, by our own goodness. Lord, there is nothing that we could do to earn this, but it had to be given to us as a gracious gift. Lord, a gift that you have given through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have sent him, that he has descended from heaven, that he has come down to earth, that he has taken on flesh and blood like we have. Lord, we thank you that he lived a perfect life, never committing one sin against you. Lord, we thank you that you sent him to die on the cross for our sins and to be perfected through his many sufferings. Lord, it is through his death that our sins are taken away. Lord, our sins which separate us from you. Lord, our sins which keep us from being in your presence, from keep us from having fellowship with you. Lord, these he has taken away by his cross. And Lord, we thank you that you have raised him up and that he has been brought forth from the dead with a new body, with a transformed body, with a glorious body. Lord, one that is fit to be in heaven. And that, Lord, that same body that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead with, Lord, is the same body that he will give to us whenever we are raised from the dead at his second coming. So, Lord, we see that in all of these things, Lord, it is your work that has been accomplished for us that has cleansed us from our sin and that has made us righteous in your sight. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you have done for us. Lord, we thank you that you are not ashamed to have us as your children. And we thank you, Christ, that you are not ashamed to call us your brethren. And Lord, we pray that just as you are not ashamed of us, that we also would not be ashamed of you, but rather that we would openly confess you before men and that, Lord, we would live our lives for your glory. Lord, knowing that there is nothing shameful about living a godly and a righteous life. So, Father, we pray that these great truths, Lord, that they would be in our heart and in our mind at all times. Lord, we know and we confess that it is our own weakness. Lord, it is our flesh, Lord, that drags us down. Lord, that keeps us from living, Lord, in light of these glorious truths. But, Lord, we pray that 
your work would have its effect in us, in that you would continue to sanctify us in this present life. Lord, that the blood of Christ would continue to work on our behalf, in that you would purge us and cleanse us, Lord, more and more from our sin, so that we live more godly before you. And that ultimately, Lord, you would give to us the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. So, Father, this great work that you have started, we pray, Lord, that you would advance it and that you would cause us to press on and, Lord, persevere until we enter into the kingdom of God. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.